0: Welcome to episode 160. Today, we look at redefining classroom management for multilingual learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Think back to your first years of teaching what classroom management systems did you use? I shamefully used raffle tickets and table points and team points. As you guessed, these were not effective at all. They basically were temporary bribes for students. I had to bribe them because my lessons were unengaging and unscaffolded. Instead of thinking about managing the behaviors, maybe I should think about structuring my lessons more appropriately. In this podcast, it's all about classroom management and rethinking it. We'll do that with Dr. Joanna Alcruz and Dr. Maggie Blair. They'll talk about ideas shared in their book called Engaging Diverse Learners. Enhance approaches to classroom management. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Joanna Alcruz and Dr. Maggie Blair from Malloy University on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Blair and Dr. Alcruz, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Dan, for the invitation and for the opportunity to talk about our book that was just recently published on engaging diverse learners. And this is an enhanced approach to classroom, enhanced approaches to classroom management.
0: Well, I saw that book on Twitter, and it was uh, shared by Dr. Andrea Hugginsfeld, your, uh, the person who wrote your foreword and a person who's quite loved in the field. And I said, oh, if Andrew is sharing it, then we must have you on the podcast. And we're so grateful. No, thank you so much.
1: She was our mentor throughout the project. <laughs> this is our first publication, so this was really an exciting journey. We wrote the book uh, mostly through COVID. It started prior to COVID, but... But we really collaborated a lot with many authors in order to get this publication out. So, so we'll
0: be happy to discuss it with you. Well, this is your first of many, many books, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's start with the first question. Can you please describe um, how you spend your days and where you spend your days? All right, I guess I'll start, Maggie. Yeah, sure. And uh, so I am a mom of three kids.
1: My husband is Philippine. I know you're in Cambodia right now, so that we haven't made a trip yet, but hopefully we will. But I am an associate professor at Malloy Community College, and I work in the EDD program, which is the Educational Leadership uh, for Diverse Learning Communities program. So I'm lucky to really teach what I got trained for. So the courses I teach are really aligned with all my journey through education uh, since I came here to United States. Uh, I teach statistics and quantitative research. I uh, My doctorate was in cognition and learning in the educational psychology program, and I also have background in assessment and measurement, so I am lucky to weave all of those different aspects mm-hmm. into my teaching. So, so I'm grateful for that. I'm also a co-director of Cognition and Learning Lab here at Malloy, So we collaborate with other faculty members and uh, students to do research projects related to how students learn, how they're motivated. So it ties very much also with the content of the book. And uh, we also recently developed a new SEL certificate here at Malois. So, so we're co-directing that mm-hmm. as well. So that's what I do on a daily basis.
2: <laughs> well, um, I, I am I am retired for the third or fourth time uh, in my career. Um, I actually began teaching in 1970. I know I don't look that old, but that's how long I've been doing this. Um, I started teaching in the South Bronx. I'm going to take you through that because it evolved into special education. I learned... That I really needed to know more about children. So I was probably one of the first teachers in New York City in classes for special education. Um, as the special ed- education grew, um, I was tapped to become a staff developer for it in New York City, and then eventually as an administrator. The problem as I saw it back then was while it was a sta- special education was established to support young student or any student, um, what ended up happening was we marginalized an entire population of people. There was an overarching feeling that these kids can't do and barriers shouldn't be set for them. And so they were separated into separate classes. And I really struggled with that. Um, I eventually moved to Long Island to districts here on Long Island where I served as a uh, the director of special education and one of the primary reasons why I came out here was because I had more control over the kinds of programs we were offering in districts and so my mission was always to become move back to the more inclusive settings for our students. Inclusive settings with high expectations and support for faculty and staff to meet the needs of the kids. At one point, someone along the way said, hey, we have a new program at at that point, Malloy College, and it was the graduate level program for special education. And I was asked to join the faculty. So for a number of years, I worked in the districts and I worked as an adjunct here because I couldn't come full time. I made my first retirement from the districts and then came to Malloy. I worked at Malloy for 17 years at the uh, master's level teaching the students, uh, the graduate students uh, in special education and I retired in the spring of 2020. However, (laughs) I didn't end my retirement was short-lived. I had written with a couple of colleagues of mine a program for a college-based program for young developmentally disabled adults to experience college and have a curriculum written specifically for them that would teach them critical thinking skills, decision-making and planful preparation for an adult life. So I spend two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays here on campus with my MOST program, which the acronym is is for MOST, Uh, opportunities for successful transition. It's a program like no other. And we have have taken the campus by storm. They belong on campus. They actively participate in events on campus. At this point, our second year students are also doing internships on campus. So this long history of job, retirement, job, retirement, job (laughs) goes on.
0: Well, when you have so much energy, and I can tell that you both have such passions for your work that Mm. you don't need to retire because it's not really a job. It's a wonderful way to spend one's life.
2: It actually is, and I thank you for that. Most people say, why didn't you retire? Why would I? The question would be, why would I?
1: No, And and when we were thinking about this book, uh, uh, I was looking for a collaborator and just knowing... uh, Maggie's expertise and and her footwork into the field was really what what i was hoping she could contribute to the book and and we have learned from each other since and we continue our weekly conversations even though the book projects are already done but i was thinking of the uh, in your question you were also talking about a story uh about teaching that has influenced my practice mm. i i remember i i originally uh, came from poland So that's that's my accent. And uh, I was, uh, I went through uh, community college, I went through, uh, I ended up doing my bachelor's and master's at NYU, and then I went to Fordham to finish my doctorate. But as my first year experience of teaching statistics at the community college, I think was the most profound, that really put me on a trajectory where I am today. And while in the teacher prep programs, you get a lot of methods courses to get you ready for school mm-hmm. and for teaching. When you jump into college teaching, it's your expertise in the content. You don't have any methods. So I stepped into the classroom, and and it was eye opening. But I really wanted to help my students as much as I can. So I ended up reaching to the chairperson. I said, you know, you know, what would you recommend? What are the best strategies to help students? And I could not believe what I heard. He started questioning my expertise in the topic that I shouldn't be in the classroom maybe, what I was doing. I was so depressed after that Mm -hmm. conversation that I said, no, I'm gonna look at the doctoral programs. I'm gonna find out a better way to learn how to teach and how to help others teach. And that's how I ended up in the educational psychology program. And and it's been my life ever
0: since. Mm Now you can go back and find that person. And say, look at my, look at my <laughs> name. Look at the title behind well, that, my name.
1: Now right. it, he he often comes to mind, and and it's just a reminder that this is what I don't want to do. So so that that makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense, and it's it's a drive behind everything I do right now. So. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure you can send the uh, the book to him to his uh, to, his, uh, to his <laughs> <the track>. Great <laughs> idea! Yeah, <laughs> little we'll ribbon. Here you go, <laughs> and Dr. Blair.
2: Yeah. Oh, for me. Well, actually, I'm going to go back to my very first special education class. And that was in 1975. And um, yeah, and I had eight students. Now, we have things called individual education plans, which are built for each student in special education and reviewed annually. And so we have them now. In 1975, the Educational Handicapped Children's Act hadn't kicked in yet. So I had eight children, and I really didn't know much about any of them. But this one young man was in the class, and he struggled with learning to read, that for sure. And he was, uh, had attentional problems at times. But he was extraordinarily bright. And he was insightful about so many things, concepts. He could generalize things. And after a year in my class, I realized this is not the place for him. But when you're in a system, that is the place because that's where they put him. And it took me the good part of one academic year to finally get this youngster sent back to his home school in his regular grade level because he was capable of doing that. And he required um, a challenge to learn. He was bored. And so we had all kinds of attentional issues because he was bored. So back then was when I began to realize the only way to meet the needs of of diverse population of students is to truly know who they are. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about knowing who they are in terms of the chapter that I wrote, because it is important. But that young man, and I still remember his name, he he was the person who influenced me to move forward, to become an advocate for these kids, but not just an advocate to be someone who could bring them through a learning process successfully. And that's when, you know, teaching here at Malloy, it was one of the things I tried to pass on to my students. You know, don't tell me a student can't. Tell me how you're going to do it and tell me why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you understand the student, you'll understand what they need, and then you'll be able to build the why.
0: And We, we all have those students that, really change our trajectory of teaching. They change the way we see instruction. And particularly, like, there are students who I, who helped me change the way to talk about students. I used to say, can't, 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 mm-hmm. until I had one student who realized that, oh, you can. It's the thing, it's like, I just can't see what you're capable of. And when mm-hmm. I was capable of seeing what they can do, my practice changed. And so I, mm-hmm. we're indebted to our students.
2: Mm-hmm. I have been a lifelong learner and not necessarily from books and research. I've been a lifelong learner from being a good observer of students, whether they were in classrooms in school districts or sitting in my graduate level classes here at Beloit.
0: Well, let's talk about your book now. Every, seed, every book has a seed. What it, it was the seed for this book? So we were actually lucky through our
1: friend Andrea Honexfeld, who is also our mentor, we did receive an invitation to edit a book. So the Mm. book was written in like 1970s and the publisher wanted to get a new version of it. And as we started looking at it and we were looking for people who could collaborate with us and contribute their knowledge and expertise we realized the book, at times, the language was almost offensive by current standards. So it could not be just updated Mm -hmm. with quick edits. It really needed to be rewritten. So we went back to the publisher and we said, listen, you know, we would like to really look at the concepts that were discussed there, but it it just has to be done from scratch. So so that's how it took us almost three years to finish this book project. But that's because we were redefining everything that was in that original book so so we were grateful for that opportunity but as we were looking at the classroom management the topic is so vast Mm -hmm. that it ended up being two books instead of one Mm -hmm. so so what we're talking about today is this volume so this is the engaging diverse learners and this is a perfect volume for incoming teachers Brand new to the field someone like myself when I was teaching that statistical course, Uh, but also for those who are ready to revisit some of their practices just to see what's out there currently in terms of uh, practices to help uh, work in the classroom and help students get engaged uh, in the learning process, and then the second book. So we try to keep the mm-hmm. theme similar. I don't know if you can see it well, but this one is student-centered classrooms, research, research-driven, and inclusive strategies mm-hmm. for classroom management. So this volume takes you a little deeper. It's a little thicker, uh, and it it looks at the issues of equity, diversity, uh, social justice, and inclusion, and provides a lot of strategies. Uh, we look at ABA, uh, mm-hmm. the applied behavioral analysis. analysis. We look at emotions, we look at gender equity in the classroom. So things that for the traditional teachers who entered the field 10, 15 years ago, those are new concepts. So they're not always ready to embrace them so this is a very good intro text into that mm-hmm. that aspect of thinking about classroom and, and the classroom settings so
2: and i th- i've agreed with, i agree with what, everything that, that joanna mentioned um however I, I i'd like to go back for a minute and talk about um the term classroom management and that term um, we we needed to get a grip for ourselves on what that actually meant. How would we define classroom management the way it was defined in the original volume from 1970 is totally different from anything that we would have def- used as a definition. And so we realized that in order in order for us to even get started with the book, we needed to have a mutually meaningful definition of, of classroom management. So. Conversations went on between Joanna and I, but then we extended those conversations to our potential authors um, because each of them had specific uh, specific, spe- spe- <laughs> specific areas of expertise and experience. So we we went to them and through their insight and our initial decision to expand the definition of classroom management, we, I would say probably about two months into the project, we were ready to go. We had the seed. We knew what classroom management meant to us. That's how we were able to reach out to our additional authors because we knew it's not just, it's not literal. It's not lateral. It's multi-tiered. And so we were able to select Uh, members of our faculty and here at Malloy because they have the expertise and so that's why one book grew into two books it was just too much to meet what we really wanted to say in one book so we made we decided to do two books it was too
1: good
0: just to have one book
1: now and the beauty of it is that that all the people that worked with us are somehow connected with Malloy so before besides Mm -hmm. the faculty members, we also had practitioners, like fieldwork supervisors that also teach with us, but they're pretty much in the field, teachers. Mm -hmm. Also, some of my EDD students who, who are in the program also contributed because they are professionals in their field. And they had a lot to say and contribute. So we really tapped into a lot of various resources with expertise and mastery of knowledge on the topic, but also with more new, fresh perspectives as well.
0: Now let's hear about from their perspective. Let's talk about how do we motivate students uh, for classroom management? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the chapter I co-wrote with my partner in CRAM with Dr. Mubina Schroeder. We both have interest in cognition and learning. We're co-directing that cognition and learning lab that I was talking about. So this this was just a natural outflow of, of what we practice in the classroom. But we started our chapter with an example of students who would like to get a black belt in martial arts. And use that as an example of how you can think about motivating students. And there are two different approaches. You can start with, you know, I want a black belt. So that drives my motivation, leads me to action, and then the outcomes. The only issue with that is it's a long pathway to get to the black belt. So if my uh, action leads not necessarily to a success, my motivation can plummet. Mm -hmm. And I might quit by my yellow belt before I even reach the black belt. So it's important to think about how do we introduce opportunities for students to practice and go into action and have that action continue motivating them. So then that black belt is an outgrowth of the yellow belt, orange belt, and so forth. So there's a progression, but they have that bigger picture and then tools to work on those smaller tasks and goals. So that was our introduction. And in this book, we talked about self-determination theory, we talked about goal setting theory, we talked about growth mindset, just to introduce ideas of how you can show to students that they can, rather they can't. And that was a very important uh, aspect for us. One of the things I just want to mention from the book was uh, we talked about constructive feedback. So in assessment that I teach and, and also for the classroom management, if you have a student who gets stuck and they cannot do the project, they sometimes don't even know where to start. So by telling them you do, do do this, this and that might not be enough because you have to find out where the gaps are in their understanding in order for them to progress. So that productive struggle sometimes is important, but the scaffolding element is important. So it's important for students to step back find out where the student is in that educational journey, help them meet the next goal, and in that way continue promoting that motivation and engagement in the classroom. And, and one of the things we talked about in terms mm-hmm. of classroom management is that engagement component, mm-hmm. that if you have a student who's engaged with learning, they don't have time to think about mm-hmm. misbehaving in a classroom mm-hmm. because they they are focused on things that are of importance. Mm-hmm. But we have to bring them to that point where they agree with you that what they're learning is, is something that, that they should be doing and, and looking at that. So we talked about how to build student-teacher relationships, uh, build supportive learning environments, but most of all empower teachers to be uh, empower uh, in charge of their own learning. So being agents of their own learning. And, and I think that's the most important message from that chapter.
0: Dr. Blair, do you want to add anything?
2: Um, well, yes, that The term engagement, you just picked up on it and Joanna elaborated a little bit more. You'll hear it again in the next chapter, fostering relationships, because engagement, actively being proactive in engaging students in the learning process or the classroom community is what brings them in. When they're motivated, when they're engaged, management flows much more smoothly. First of all, and second of all, because you've planned for it. And there's two things: engagement and being uh, providing proactive planning in each segment. You'll see these re, these themes reiterated from one chapter to the next, and not because of Joanna and I, because each mem- each member of the faculty, uh, each member of our of our author staff, all talk about it because they all value it. So I think, you know, that's something, that's a takeaway for anyone looking at this book, the importance of being proactive in planning and understanding how
0: to engage uh, all kinds of kids, all kinds of diverse kids, so. So let's talk about that. Like how, what are the strategies to foster relationships and to engage students?
2: Well, you know, it's very interesting because we all know how important uh, relationships are to the growth of an individual or the success of a team or the success of a a new initiative or a program. We all know that. Um, We were very fortunate because the authors of this particular chapter were, uh, were very pragmatic in their approach. They were creative and insightful, but they were very pragmatic. And they actually broke it down by their areas of experience. So one of the authors, uh, Kathleen was is, is an elementary school teacher. So she takes part of the chapter as, a, as a, a classroom teacher and talks about how important relationships are in the classroom room for building a sense of safety, for being a sense of belonging and being a recognized contributing member of a a community. The, The other author, another author is Mike Ferretti. Mike is actually a school district administrator here on Long Island. And he looks at engagement through the lens of restorative practices. How do we engage students in problem solving within the classroom? And so he points out a number of strategies that can actually be used successfully with, again, a diverse population of students who come from diverse backgrounds and yet come together in one community, which would be a school or a building. The other thing that he pointed out, and I thought this was very astute on his part, the importance of continuity across a district so he looked at the district administrators role as building that continuity you can have one building using one set of practices and another building using another set of practices so he talks about all of that so now what he does is he opens the door to um, he opens the door to communication across buildings and across administrators in a district and I thought that was very very insightful the last member of the of the author staff on this is uh, Dr. Eve Derringer, who is actually here in the School of Education at MOI. She is the director of field placement. She's formerly a um, a principal uh, in a school district here on Long Island, and she talks about um, she, she talks about fostering relationships by actually looking at. Uh, candidates. You know, are we recruiting candidates that look like, that sound like, that share common cultural points with students? And Mm -hmm. so she works very hard at doing that kind of recruitment at the level of the college for the program. So I think it was so well laid out because it was very personal. And yet, when it came together as a chapter, it was very cohesive in terms of how we can build and foster relationships, engagement, and, and community uh, from a classroom to a district to a university.
0: Yeah, hiring is so important. The administrators have so much impact in the in students' experiences by simply the way they hire and who they hire. Right?
2: There's a message, there is a message there. That's right, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh,
0: let's talk about how to personalize learning for classroom management. Yeah.
2: Okay, well, that's the chapter I wrote with my colleague from the college here. And I'd like to just take a minute and reflect back on things that I talked earlier about earlier, that the fact that most of my lifelong lessons came from the students I worked with, right? Um, I don't think my passion for education and my long-lasting my long lasting stand in this community would be the same without having met each and every one of those students who influenced my life. And And I said, don't say this to score points. This is what I believe. This is what I believe, and it's why I do what I do. Um, uh, I, I came, because of my students, I came to realize early on that everybody can learn and that the bar needs to be raised for everyone no excuses it's not the student it's the it's the faculty in the classroom that bring the student to the goals and so I started to think about well, uh-huh. I'm going to backtrack with the story. So I worked for a number of years here at the college uh, in a, we called it a pilot program about 12 years ago, but it went on as a program for 12 years, so I don't think it was a pilot program anymore. Um, I worked with one of my colleagues who was a district administrator for social studies. And he's a bit, and he'll, he'll, he'll agree to this, he's a bit of a social studies geek. Okay. He has very high expectations in the content area. And he came to me and said, Maggie, listen, I really think we should, if we're going, we should teach co-teaching by actually co-teaching. So we laid that plan out for the associate dean at the graduate school. And she said, fine. So our program had a co-taught co-teaching class and he represented the content and I represented the supports so we actually modeled different methods of co-teaching but more importantly he would come every September with a new thing whatever it was he was reading something it was a new thing so one September he comes in and he starts talking about Marcus Aurelius and his military strategies So I sat back and I listened very carefully because I knew it had a point. I just had to wait for it. You have to wait for it. And he got to the point. When you're developing military strategies, you're developing them because there are obstacles in your way to success. And so you have to figure out how to get around those obstacles. And so the obstacle becomes the new way. And that's exactly what I had been doing, only I didn't use Marcus Aurelius <laughs> as my example. So, so we actually, he drew a model of what it was like if, when, you, when, you, when the, the obstacle becomes the way. And every couple of weeks, the students would walk into the graduate course and we would pop that up on the screen and be talking about all the obstacles that they faced, you know, getting this course together. Um, so what we did in this particular class, and I'll, t- I'll I'll explain the class, and then I'll explain the chapter because one's tied to the other. Um, in this class, we did co-teaching. Um, he his requirement for the course was that our students uh, design a unit of study based on the based on the inquiry design model um, for classes. And we, we assigned it based on if they were high school teachers, it was the high school curriculums, middle school, elementary school. And then I supported them to write and de- design and write individual sequential lessons that would get the students from the beginning to the end result, to the learning outcome. What we did after that was at, when they had their unit plan done and they had their lesson plans done, I then gave them three the three students, a profile of three different students who'll be in their class, who were a little bit more challenging. And the first thing the students said to me was, why did you wait so long to give us these students? And I said, because it doesn't make any difference who's in your class. If that's the learning outcome, everybody has to meet it. Now do it. So then we went back to the individual lesson plans because they had been so good at using differentiation of instruction using universal design the the, the universal for design uh, the universal design for learning framework and having had experience with co-teaching they were able to include all of that in their finished product and for the most part they were very successful at what they did it wasn't easy what is this chapter this chapter is a bird's eye view of that Entire semester with all of the plans of how to be how to proactively um, plan for students, all kinds of students, because no matter what, every student has a right to learn and be challenged in the classroom. Huh? Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, meanwhile, by the way, my friend Dr. Sheehan. I got him to join the MOST program, and he's just completed writing the literacy-based curriculum for all three years here. And it's all based on growth mindset, analyzing social media. The first question is, how do you know what you know is true? Okay. Then it's, who am I? Growth mindset. And the last one is answering the three questions: What's the most important? Who's the most important person? What's the most important thing to do? And when is it done? And the, that's develop, moving them into their role as members of a community. So thanks to Dr. Sheehan and his uh, "The obstacle is the way." We've we've really we've gotten past that obstacle is, and we found the way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that you are going to help him stay away from retirement as well as he joins the <laughs> program. And his wife helps so. <laughs> uh, let's move to talking about classroom management for culturally and, and linguistically diverse learners.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, the authors of this, uh, this chapter, we had Dr. McDermott, who's mm-hmm. teaching with us, and we had one of my EDD students, Lisa Peluso. Uh, She's now a doctor as well, and Mm -hmm. she's actually joined, she has joined the faculty here at Malloy as well. So they collaborated on really coining uh, this rich discussion on the historical and cultural perspectives of education in the United States. So they looked at the policies, the impact of population shifts over the years in a classroom management type of settings. So their historical walkthrough. Uh, of key policy changes over the years shown how first slave, then non-white children were deprived mm-hmm. of the education opportunity. So it's really a historical concept, but, but it gives you a perspective or how far we went from when we were still defining what education is to where we are today. So there were waves of immigrants. Uh, that's how I, mm-hmm. I can say immigrants from Poland, from Europe were coming in and they were discriminated against. Then the next wave, Asian, population mm-hmm. from korea china right so all of that those waves were challenging the educational system so they're discussing how how that has impacted where we are today but then they shifted to talk about what does it mean for teaching so what can we mm-hmm. do to now meet the needs of our culturally and diverse students in the classroom and then put it they put it back on the teachers so we have to start with ourselves as educators mm-hmm. Who are we, Mm -hmm. going back to the questions from Dr. Sheehan, right? And what are our perspectives? What are our teacher expectations? What are our biases, stereotypes that we Mm -hmm. bring into the classroom? And how can we challenge ourselves to get to know the students who look differently, who come from different countries? So without getting to know them and communication, that is so important, Mm -hmm those needs cannot be met. So that's really the essence of of where they're coming from.
2: And I just have an observation after listening to Joanna speaking, uh, you know, to you and and for me and, and sharing that particular chapter. When you really look at what they've written, you're looking at three individuals who are all not, I'm I'm only first generation in this country. My parents are both immigrants as well. So, you know, it's, it really says a lot that we can talk about this, we can relate to it, but we can use it to improve, to stretch, to demand an equitable education for a, a multitude of diverse populations of people.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. Let's talk about, um, I feel like actually... Um, we should go back and talk about. Let's define classroom management because you talked about in your earlier research where the the initially were the, de- the definitions of classroom management mm-hmm. are not the definitions you would use now. Yeah. So how, yeah. let's talk about that before we go into the next question. Okay.
2: Um, well, classroom management, I think, back in the seventies, only because I also lived it. <clears throat> Um, (laughs) All I did um, was, you know, everyone does the same thing at the same time with not always the same results. Uh, It was a top-down management approach. Um, Students, they followed the old axiom, students should be seen, not heard unless called on. Um, It was very rigid and that does not allow for young people to grow and grow into themselves. Um, And it's certainly very stressful because with new populations coming in, cultural norms are different. And, and, you know, you've got to understand that we've got different kids today. We've got different family structures. We've got different uh, cultural standards. We've got kids who learn differently. We've got all kinds of things that are different. And so where it would be a linear piece Back in the 70s, now it's taking into consideration diversity. And when I say diversity, it can be cultural, but it can also be based on their ability, uh, based on their, um, uh, on their, I don't like to say disabilities. I, I don't like the term disability. I refer to my students as they have, they're different, they learn differently, they're diverse, they challenge you to, to do more things differently for them. Um, but but yes, you know I think we need to do that. That needed to be done, and that was one of the problems that we had initially with the class, with the book, was the fact that it was just top down, and that's we don't live in a top down world anymore.
1: We very much flipped it, and <laughs> and what you have in the book are not necessarily interventions for when students get into trouble but really a more proactive approach of yes. how to prevent it. Right. So how what can we do as teachers starting from the first day on in terms of setting the culture in the classroom, expectations, and then holding everybody accountable to that? So mm-hmm. that is really how we viewed it. Mm-hmm. And, and the title of the book says it all, that the, that engagement piece is so crucial to how we view classroom management right now that this mm-hmm.
0: is this is our definition. So it's like you're responding to students needs instead of mm-hmm. reacting to their behavior. Correct. Correct. Being and you create
2: a but we do culture. it proactively.
0: Yes. yes. You, and by you by doing that, you create a culture and you mm-hmm. create learning engagements that make them love learning instead of reacting to them when they're not behaving.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean that they will not misbehave, but they will have already tools and the teachers and hopefully students will have tools in place that will allow them to Mm -hmm. mitigate it and diminish it and and resolve it if and when And it's one of the
2: reasons why Mike put that piece in on restorative practices, because now that engages the students in the problem solving. This is what was the problem and how do we solve it? Instead of the teacher solving it, it should be the community that solves it. And the community really is the students.
0: That's beautiful. The community is really the students. Yeah. They create that community. Yes. They buy yeah. into it. Right?
2: You know, it's interesting because um, uh, I would often start the graduate level classes, first night of class, and ask a simple question who is the most important person in the district? Or who is the most important person, you know, in terms of the education? And often I got the principal and I'd say, no. And then they would say, oh, I know. The superintendent, mm, no. And then they'd say, ah, the parents. And I'd say, no. The most important people, and my friends never lose sight of this fact, are the students, why? With no students, there are no parents, there's no jobs for principals, and there's no jobs for superintendents. So start and always remember this, it's the kids that we look at first.
0: (laughs) And that's your book, Student-Centered Learning. Yes, Yes. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Let's move to our next question. Can you describe the communication strategies that support students for grade level transitions? So so
2: this chapter in
0: communication,
2: um, the the biggest problem we had with it was not having this chapter, but was where we were going to put it. In which book and in deciding on the book, then where in the book. So when you really look at this chapter, um, or you look at all the preceding chapters... um, This particular chapter actually at this point serves as a linchpin connecting all of the other chapters in this particular volume. Communication is the single most common theme identified and discussed throughout the book in engaging um, diverse learners. Uh, Effective communication is central, is a central strategy to almost essential to almost every strategy that's presented in the various chapters so after joanna and i reread the final reread of the chapters and we finalized all the chapters and where they were going we decided to place this chapter uh, on communication after discussions on student motivation relationship building, uh, personal learning, cultural and linguistic diversity, because each of those preceding chapters emphasized the importance of effective communication for the success of specific strategies. So in this way, a reader would come to this chapter having had experience with strategies that involved communication. And so we decided to put it where it was because then it served as a closure to the strategies presented, but it also opened the door for the next section, which eventually will be social emotional learning, and again the importance of communication in that. So, uh, I think I think um, I think Dr. Park, who was the author of this particular cha- uh, chapter, was very student when she pointed out that communication strategies provide a bridge between the chasm of information. And the lack of contextual experiences that most pre-K through 12 students have, her chapter brings the opening of you know she opens opens the chapters up for communication or re- reiterates the importance of communication, and then for for strategies, but then also opens the door to the to the to the next section of the book that eventually flows into the second book. So,
0: it's like you planned this intentionally.
2: Oh, we did. We just, it, it was very meaningful, right? Oh, it was very meaningful. No, absolutely. it was. It really was. It was hard.
0: No, no. And, and, and the
1: importance of that chapter is also talking about the points of transition mm-hmm. where students struggle yeah, switching from middle school to high school, high school to college. And mm-hmm. the shift in expectations
0: mm-hmm. is
1: really overwhelming to students. So that key element of communicating to students, helping them transition is, is so important. So that's what she's also talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: Your last chapter is on fostering social, emotional learning for classroom management. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and I recently was uh, in a classroom with my students and one of them just asked me, you know, so what is, uh, what is SEL and why do teachers struggle with, Mm -hmm. with really embracing this type of approach? And some of the things that she mentioned is that there's a lot of pushback because the teachers are they don't feel they're counselors. This is not their role. They're here to teach and they have a hard time transitioning to thinking about SEL as one of the strategies that they can have in a toolbox to help students and especially also in relation to the classroom management so my answer to that for her was that uh, this is all very true we have to know you know where our roles end and what is really uh, what expertise we bring to the classroom and and when it's beyond that we should shift to others who can help us with it. But the advantage of the teachers of, over any mental health practitioners is that they see kids daily for several hours mm-hmm. and they can spot when they're stamping off with the student and they might not know the definition of that. They might not know why or how to deal with it at the moment, but they can jumpstart that conversation and get other people involved to help Mm. the students. So it goes back to communication. So Mm. in this chapter, we have three mental health practitioners, a social worker, a counselor, uh, no, two social Social workers, workers and a a counselor, counselor, who are talking about how teachers can now think about those strategies in the classroom. So again, they're not going to treat heavy duty trauma that happened to students, but they can teach them how to calm down, how, mm-hmm. how to relax, how to bring yourself to that point where there's fertile ground for learning to happen. So if students are not in that position where they can think about learning, then learning is not going to happen no matter what you do as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that element that's almost a precursor to everything that happens mm-hmm. in the classroom can help teachers as well. So so the strategies that are presented in, the, in this chapter really talk about what the teachers can do with that.
2: I'd like to also go back for a minute because um, in your initial story, we talked about the fact that teachers said, that's not my role, it's not my responsibility, I teach. And um, I didn't give a chance to mention it earlier, but one of the things that I talked about frequently in my classes, and is also in the chapter that Kevin and I wrote, is the fact that I never referred to my students as teachers. I refer to them as facilitators of learning. And here's the reason why. To teach brings a a passive response from the student. It's active for a teacher or the person, but it's not necessarily active for the student. If you facilitate learning, you move the students into an active mode and we all know that when you learn things by practicing by doing by exploring you you learn it okay so teachers need to be able to facilitate learning and you can't facilitate learning if you know that a child in your class is struggling simply by observing him all right you've got to handle that first that's proactive in order to be successful with the academic piece So one of the mantras that most of my students left my class with was if you want to be if you truly want to be an effective facilitator of learning, you need to be a keen observer of your children. And that's exactly what Joanne was just talking about. So that ties it pretty much all together. Active. It's all about active, proactive and knowing who your students are and where they are in a given moment.
1: Um, we hope that this book will, will enter new perspectives for the teachers in terms of how they approach the classroom and, and equip them with strategies that could help them execute that. So,
0: Well, I hope that they see that the obstacle is the way through this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's end the podcast this way. Um, I have an activity called, well, a metaphor called Traffic Light Teaching. It's what would you ask teachers to do in terms of classroom management, in terms of Uh, Red light, stopping, something they can stop doing. Yellow light, something they can keep doing. Uh, And green light, something that they can start doing. Why not stop, but not just
2: stop? Stop and reflect. What are your values? What are your beliefs? What's your mindset? If you don't start in a reflective way, we don't know who we are. So how do we help students? So I think stop and ref, and then I'd add stop and reflect for
1: Perfect. the red light. Perfect, definitely. The The yellow light, uh, the continuing aspect of it is remember what you were talking about, remembering the students are. At the heart of everything that we mm-hmm. do. So, how do we support them? How do we uh, build their skills? How do we empower them and make them agents of their own learning? That's that's something that that we should definitely mm-hmm.
2: continue doing. And the green light, the green light. Keep engaging. Keep talking. Keep sharing. Keep respecting. Keep pulling information from them. You know, let's let's become facilitators, not just. Teach,
0: perfect. Well, thank you for facilitating uh, our learning in this in this podcast today. I know teachers will appreciate all the authors and all the expertise that you have brought together to help us see classroom management not as a response, but as a proactive endeavor of learning. Thank you, Tan. thank you, Tan. Thank you, Tan. It was thank nice you, meeting
2: everyone. you. Take care, everyone. Enjoy
0: before we recap this episode i have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast my invitation is to check out my three courses on english learner portal one is on creating the conditions for mls to thrive one on teacher collaboration and one based on my co-authored book with beth Skelton called long-term success for experienced multilinguals now on to our recap As an ELD specialist, I get to see lots of different teaching styles and classroom approaches when I co-teach. The elements of the most effective classroom management systems aren't actual systems. The teachers that I respect the most aren't actually managing students' behavior because they don't need to be managed. That's because students are engaged in the lessons because they're so active and hands-on and also well scaffolded. So there's less misbehavior because students have clear instructions, so they know what to do and they're not frustrated. But they're also not bored because it's quite engaging. This is what it means to redefine classroom management in particular for multilingual students. I hope you enjoy their book. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play traffic light teaching tweeted me either your red yellow or green light from this particular episode.